Hear the word of our God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going down, another, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Father, your whole family here on earth and in heaven is called by your name. It is out of your glorious riches we ask that you strengthen us who are weak, through your spirit and our inner being. Do this so that Christ, your Son, may dwell in our hearts by faith. We also ask that we would be rooted and established in love, having the ability, together with all our brothers and sisters in Christ, to grasp the width, depth, height, and length of the love of God for us in Christ. Help us to know this love that surpasses our knowledge, that we may be filled to completeness with the fullness of you. And we ask that you, who are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to your power at work in us by the Spirit, to glorify your name in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if any of you remember the movie, Leap of Faith. If you haven't seen that, it's on Netflix. You can stream it if you want. I should have streamed it this week because I was like realizing this morning. I should have watched that to remember more details. But you'll, if, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with this movie, it is, of course, a Steve Martin movie, and that means it has a strange dynamic all to itself. But it is about a faith healer. It is about a man and his team who go from town to town throughout the center of this country, and they put on little revivals, and uh, many people would come to these revivals, many of whom would seek to be healed. 
In preparation for this role, Steve Martin watched a whole lot of Benny Hinn. Now, when I first saw this movie, I had no idea who Benny Hinn was, but Steve Martin prepared me for the reality that was Benny Hinn. But he also, in the course of the movie, was, was doing what Peter Popoff was caught doing. And that was uh, when people would arrive, they would have them fill out these little cards, put down their need, and what would happen is that uh, he would have a little earpiece, and his assistant in the back where no one could see would read to him things, and he would act as though the Spirit was leading him to say, Jim, there's someone here named Jim with knee problems. And Jim, come on up. So forth and so on. He was a charlatan. He was a fake, making money off the desperate hopes of people. But part of the plot twist is that one day the unthinkable happened. A real miracle took place. Desperation. That sense that we cannot change something that's wrong something that we desperately need to be changed, and needing God or someone to fix it for us. That's really what the, a lot of that movie is about. That's really what this text is about. As we saw initially, that there were multitudes of people who were desperate, who needed God to intervene. And we're going to see Jesus intervene in the life of one. Our big idea is that Jesus makes people physically and spiritually whole. The first thing I want us to keep track of here is that we are to bring our physical and spiritual needs to Christ. We see that Jesus has been up in Cana. We saw the, the miracle last week <clears throat> where the, the official was what came to Jesus because his son was deathly ill and asked Jesus to heal him. Actually, he wanted Jesus to go back to Capernaum and heal him, but... Jesus said, go, your son is well. So he's left Cana for a particular reason, and that reason is there's a feast day. Jesus, being a good Jew, celebrated the feast days. And so he went down to Jerusalem with the rest of the people. Now, unlike many instances here in the Gospel of John, uh, there's no mention of which feast it was. We saw before, previously, when Jesus went down, it was for Passover. Uh, and so there are three Passover feasts that are mentioned in the Gospel of John, as well as uh, the Feast of Dedication um, and Tabernacles. This one, there's no mention. Typically, when, when John mentions what feast it was, it's because what Jesus is about to do or say is somehow tied into what that feast is about. And that's not the instance here. The focus is, is particularly going to be on a sign. Jesus keeps the law, including the ceremonial law, in order to be an unblemished lamb, a proper sacrifice. And so we see Jesus fulfilling this even in this passage. The sacrificial system, of course, was provided by God in the Exodus to provide provisional pardon for repentant sinners. But Jesus is not just any place by the, tab the temple. He ends up at the Sheep Gate. That's where the sheep would come in, hence the name. The Sheep Gate was built or rebuilt by Eliashib for the sacrificial animals to enter. 
Uh, we see it being rebuilt in Nehemiah chapter 3, and there's a lot of dedication of the whole wall, and particularly of the Sheep Gate. Only a part of the, the temple, but the primary purpose of the temple, the overarching region, purpose of the temple was to meet the spiritual needs of the nation. It was there they could go, there they could meet with God, there their sins could be atoned for, there they could uh, you know, participate in fellowship offerings. The spiritual life of the nation was centered on the temple. And so people flocked, not just during the feast days, but at other opportunities to the temple for their spiritual needs. Now this temple, uh, this portion of the sheep gate, there are, there's a pool that's there, when he says in the in the, in the Aramaic, it's called Bethsaida. We'll get to that in a moment. But in actuality, the, the archaeologists have discovered two pools that are there next to each other. They're nearby. It's not one, but two pools. And they found the five canopies that surround them to provide shade from the desert sun for people. And these were presumably for some form of ceremonial cleansing, bathing or washing. The word Bethsaida may mean either house of mercy or flowing waters. We're not sure exactly which one of these it is, but both of these, within the context, are, have glimmers of hope within them. They indicate something about the hope. And here's where John lets us know the bad news. Sounds good. He's at the temple. He's by the pools. And in these, in these canopies, lay a multitude of invalids. Then he clarifies this with a series of adjectives. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is not a pretty picture. I mentioned John Adams in uh, the prayer time this morning. It's not a pretty picture when you go to the VA hospital. He's, not, he's no longer at the VA hospital, but when Mike and I would go to visit, you see people who are in desperate straits. People who aren't able to live on their own anymore. It's sort of like this. These are people who are in very desperate conditions. But they're here for a particular reason. D.A. Carson notes that uh, there are ancient witnesses who indicate that the water was red. It had a reddish tint to it. And so they thought it was ferric water. High and iron. And they thought that this water was therapeutic. That would help cure. And you can go to spas all over the world right now that have this kind of water, and they usually tout the therapeutic value of getting into those particular streams of water, those wells, those springs. Now, these pools, we believe, were supplied, at least in part, by an artesian well. And because of that, the waters would sometimes stir. There would be a ripple on the water that was not discernible. But, you know, it wasn't because someone got in the water or something fell in the water. It would just be there, appearing. And a superstition arose. Now, some of you might have the King James or the New King James. I don't know what you've got there. Uh, if you have something like an NIV or an ESV, there should be a little footnote down there mentioning that there are some verses there was a superstition that emerged. Now, these verses that are not in your ESV are not there because the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not contain these verses. Um, this is controversial for some people. Way back when I was working at the rescue mission, 
um, the chaplain was preaching, and I was getting ready to <clears throat> do my job after the end of chapel. And so I'm listening into the chapel, and he's on this passage. And he starts going off on how, you know, the angel was stirring the waters. And that was the superstition that emerged. The angels would stir the waters, and that would be the trigger for people. The first one in the water gets healed. That was the superstition that emerged. When he emer when the, the chaplain emerged after his sermon, we had a, co a brief conversation that did not go well. I asked him what he knew about textual criticism with regard to this passage because he was really focusing on the angels and the water and not on Christ and what he does. It was then that I was told that I was an apostate. <laughs> so some of these people, King James-only people, very aggressive. You can't talk to them about these things. But anyway, the superstition arose and uh, the people like this man that we're going to talk about in a few moments held to this particular superstition. And so when the water was stirred, there would be this desperate rush to get into the water first. Imagine being there for a moment. How sad it would have looked. Because who's rushing? People who were blind? People who were crippled? This is not the 40-yard dash at the Olympics. This is a sad struggle to try and get to the water first by people whose bodies have betrayed them in some sense. And so this is a very sad sort of thing to, to, to behold with one's eyes. Now, that wasn't the only reason that they were there. We see from places like Acts 3, which we also read from this morning, that there were people in the temple who were crippled who would receive alms, money. People would give to the poor, to the, to the handicapped. And so this was the place they would, one of the places they would gather and get the pastors by to help them out, to meet their physical needs. Because again, these people couldn't hold jobs. But it points to a deeper problem within them. Not just within them, but their community. There was no one taking care of them. They were on their own. Their family had not brought them in. Their family had not said, we're going we're gonna to take care of you. We're going to provide for you. We know that you're in this desperate situation, and, and we're going to take care of it. Their families weren't doing that. They were sent out to beg. And so in a sense, there was a breakdown within the immediate family, perhaps. A, a, a lack of fellowship and companionship within the home that drove them to the temple so that they could have the resources they needed to eat, to live. The temple was not just a place where spiritual needs were met, but often it was a place where physical needs were met by God for his people. Chapter 2 of John, we remember, if you think back, scroll back in your own minds, Jesus was greater than the temple. In fact, Jesus was the new temple, the living temple. And so he's, he's revealed himself as this already, and so we can think of Christ as being the real place 
where these physical and spiritual needs are going to be met after the destruction of the earthly temple in 70 AD. So Christ, in his mercy, invites us to bring all our needs to him to be addressed. Let's get to the first part of that aspect of it. Jesus is able to make people physically whole. With all of the multitudes, Jesus focuses on one man. Jesus saw a man who was an invalid for 38 years. Now, I imagine if he was a relatively faithful Jew, which you'd you'd think he might be since he's hanging out at the temple, okay, that over the course of those 38 years, he had probably prayed numerous times, God, heal me. God, help me. And to this point, after 38 years, his prayers, his desires had not been addressed by God aside from the giving of alms by others. Okay? It's an odd contrast when we think about the healing that just took place at the end of chapter 4 and the healing that takes place here at the beginning of chapter 5. On the one hand, it was a young boy. Here in chapter 5, it's a middle-aged man, at least. He's been a cripple for 38 years, so he's probably in his 40s. With the boy, it was a quick, deadly disease that he had. There was some sort of fever that he had that, that put him in peril for his life. In this instance, it's nothing so dramatic as that. But it's a chronic condition that endured for years. He was not at risk for his life as a result of this, but his life was very hard as a result of this. In chapter 4, we see it's not the boy who comes to Jesus, it's the father who comes in his stead. You know, the father initiates this and he pleads for his son, whereas in this case, Jesus comes to the man and makes an offer. So it's an interesting contrast between these two things. That I think is instructive that there's no one way in which it all happens. Okay? There's not a formula for us to follow, in other words. Okay? As if, uh, you know, Benny Hinn were to show up here today. Jesus asks him a question, presumably out of the blue Do you want to be healed? That word has that idea of being well, of being whole. Okay? Odd question, isn't it? Who would say no? I've, kind of, I've gotten to kind of liking my life here, hanging out by the pool. I've come to enjoy the struggle to get into the water first and failing every time. I've come to enjoy relying upon the kindness of strangers. Who would say that? As is common with everyone Jesus seems to interact with in the Gospel of John, this guy didn't quite get exactly what Jesus was at. I mean, he was close. He was close. But he has, Jesus wants to make sure that this man reckons with the fact that being made whole would create serious changes in his life. R.C. Sproul notes, There would be no more handouts. No more assistance. Instead, He would have to be productive. 
He would have to function in a society where he had been unable to be productive for 38 years. Those of you who are familiar with Monty Python, remember there's one thing where in the movie they made that's not about Jesus. Don't confuse it. It's not about Jesus. But there's a a healthy, virile young man skipping about, spare a talent for an old ex-leper. And the what? what do you mean, ex-leper? Well, you know, there I was just laying by the side of the road, begging for money, and uh, Jesus came right along up and healed me, and now I don't know what to do with myself. So spare, and he's hopping along with, spare a talent for an old ex-leper. This man is being invited into a different life. He's going to have to leave behind everything that he's known, everything that's been comfortable and normal, part of his routine for the last 38 years. It's all going to be different now. And so Jesus asked that question, do you want to be made whole. And his response is that I have no one to put me in the pool. See, he's, he's thinking, Jesus is asking him, do you, do you want me to help you get in the water when it gets stirred? And you know, something along those lines. He's, he's thinking along the superstition of everyone else around him because he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus can do. And he has no one to stand by his side to help him get into the water. He is not like Hunter. Oh, sorry, he doesn't have a brother like Hunter Gandhi. Maybe you've seen that in the paper recently or on the internet. Recently, there was a 40 mile trek for cerebral palsy. Hunter, who's 14, strapped his seven-year-old brother who suffers from cerebral palsy on his back and made the track. Okay? This guy by the pool has no brother, Hunter, to strap him on his back and carry him to the pool when it's time. He's alone, and he needs help. And so Jesus speaks three quick commands to the man. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. How would you respond? Think about that for a moment. Imagine, if you will, that you have been incapacitated for 38 years and a man you don't know shows up next to you and says, Get up, pick up your bedroll, and walk away. I'm not sure what I would think. But for some reason, this man gets up. He must have felt something in his legs. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But it must have been something that keyed him into the fact that now these useless legs worked because he gets up. No physical therapy. Nothing to create muscle memory for legs that haven't worked properly in 38 years. Well, if you have a knee replacement, hasn't been 38 years, you still got to do physical therapy to train those muscles, right? Instantaneous. That's why it's called a miracle. That's why they, we don't think they happen every day. Although, if I've had a knee replacement, I wish it would happen every day, right? Okay. He gets up. Even though this completely random stranger speaks to him these words, he's whole 
instantaneously. He obeys the word of Jesus. In doing this, I want you to think that Jesus is greater than David. There's a reason why we read from 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? 2 Samuel chapter 9. David loves his friend Jonathan. And, because, and in, after Jonathan, Jonathan's death, he's wondering if there's anyone in the family that he can bestow compassion and mercy upon. And he hears of Mephibosheth. And he, he sends for him. And of course, you don't find out until the very last verse of the chapter that he's crippled. Okay. But in addition to being crippled, he's gone from being part of the royal family to being an outcast. Okay, so he's got social problems. He has physical problems. And David says, I'm going to take care of you the rest of my life. Because of Jonathan, because of my friendship and my covenant with Jonathan, you are going to dine at my table until the day you die. David met his social needs. He's no longer an outcast. He's at the king's table. And he's met his physical needs, again, at the king's table. Jesus does something greater than what David did. He gave this man his life back, his health back. David did not heal the Phibosheth's broken, uh, broken leg, so to speak. But Jesus does here. Jesus is greater than King David, one of the greatest figures in Israelite history. Now, Jesus, we come to a problem here, for some of us anyway. There's multitudes there, and Jesus healed one. Most people don't receive miracles. Again, that's partially why they're called miracles. They're not everyday occurrences. They're not even every year occurrences. He healed one. The disciples, when they became apostles, same thing. They, they found one guy in the temple and, and healed him, and that sparked a whole controversy. But they didn't go around finding every beggar in the street and healing them. We don't know exactly why. That, and part of it is because that really wasn't the point. This is a sign. This is, the, this is the third sign in this particular gospel that's pointing to us to something about Jesus. Okay? There's something that he wants us to know. But we see that we must have the attitude of Job. Because imagine you're one of the other guys who watches for a second. You see this guy get healed. Why not me? Job won. Job's lost everything. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. Look at that. He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we really have to have that mindset. You can pray that God would heal you of something, but you need to have the mindset of he's God and you're not. And he may choose not to do that which you desire. He may delay that which you long for most desperately 
in your heart. We have to recognize that most often Jesus uses ordinary means to heal our ailments if they are, and in fact, able to be restored. He uses time. He uses medicine. He uses surgery. He uses those kinds of things most often in our lives. So we're not to forsake them. We're to utilize them by faith, recognizing that, that God had placed people in this world who have these particular gifts and knowledge and abilities in order to help us. To use a doctor is not an absent, the absence of faith. But it's often how God works. Most of us will not experience such wholeness until the resurrection. And we're really to keep that in mind. That these miracles, in addition to being signs, they're really an intrusion of the resurrection life into the present. In other words, they don't necessarily really belong here. Okay? They're an exception. And we can't expect that we're going to get that same sort of exception. I can't, in other words, I can't hold out and say, you know what, I'm just going to pray that Eli gets healed. That the rest of his cleft palate stuff will just be instantaneously done by God. No. Most likely God is going to use the ordinary means. He has appointed them. We must use them. In Acts, we see not only the physical needs addressed in terms of healings, but also the financial needs of poor Christians. They're met by the church through the giving of alms. We see that as well in Acts. And so we see that Jesus enters the lives of the physically disadvantaged with wisdom to give grace. Not every physically disadvantaged person, but the ones he wants to, and the ways he wants to do it, the ways that is best. Third thing this morning is that Jesus is able to make people spiritually whole. See, Jesus chose to perform this miracle or sign for what would follow, and as we read the rest of it, you probably realized, well, that didn't go well. And that's exactly the point. It wasn't supposed to go well. It's to bring to the surface the problems that existed spiritually within the nation of Israel. A controversy about the Sabbath is about to erupt. And in the midst of that controversy, Jesus is going to reveal more of who he is. And since it's Father's Day, I'll cheat. Because part of what he says is, my father has been working up until now, and so have I. Jesus does what his father does. Now, he's not like us earthly fathers, who we don't want our kids replicating our sin, right? <laughs> The good, the good stuff we want our kids to do, like that we do. Not the bad stuff, and unfortunately, it all gets mixed up in there, and they get some of the bad stuff. But Jesus is perfectly revealing the Father, as it talks about in John chapter 1, verse 14. He, he exegetes or reveals the Father, and one way is in this working that we see right here. Jesus' motives in prompting this controversy were pure, they're perfect because he's going to reveal his power. He's going to reveal his identity to the people around him and to us who read this. But don't use this, please, to justify instigating controversy on your own. 
because your motives are not pure. They're not perfect. This is a illustration that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised coming one, the Messiah. Isaiah 35, we see. Isaiah 35 is one of the passages that inspired over a thousand tongues to sing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Messiah is bringing this to pass. And so Jesus is also revealing that he deals not just with withered limbs, but also with filthy and lonely hearts, because there's a statement that, we, that I read later on in this passage that we'll get to in a... I don't think it's next week. That's when I get back from vacation. See, okay, after, after Jesus comes back and finds him, he says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now in this particular case, his particular sin was the cause in some way, shape, or form of his ailment. Okay? Now there are other places where it is obviously clear that it's not. Perhaps, uh, for instance, John chapter 9, the man born blind, the... Disciples ask, they come across him, and the disciples ask, whose sin, was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus said, neither. It's so that the glory of God might be revealed. So not every person who has affliction, it's not because of particular sin. Sometimes it's just the way God has ordained life for various reasons. But in this instance, it was connected with his sin because he warns him to sin no more. But please don't assume when you meet someone who has hardship, who has illness, who has a handicap, please don't assume that it's because of their sin. Adam's sin, yes, but not their sin. And if you experience this don't necessarily, don't go right to that place of beating yourself up. What have I done to deserve this? Because it is, it is perhaps not connected with a sin you have committed, but more connected to the grace God desires to impart to you that you would never look for had you not experienced that affliction and hardship. But we need to know that Christ is sufficient to deal not just with our physical needs, but with our sin and with our spiritual needs. That's really what's going on here. It's similar to the man who was lowered through the roof by his friends. See, he had friends. This guy didn't have friends. That guy did. Okay? But Jesus doesn't say, you know, pick up your mat, go. He says, you're healed. I mean, sorry, you're forgiven. Jesus reverses it this time. He heals him of his physical malady, but then essentially mentions that it was ultimately a spiritual problem. And his sin has been forgiven. So Jesus, who made him physically well, can make you spiritually or emotionally whole. We we don't have to just bring our physical problems to Jesus, but we should bring our emotional 
problems with Jesus, uh, to Jesus and our spiritual problems to Jesus. For he who is able to make a man 38 years lame whole can work in us as well. And so we see that the living temple, Jesus, and his body, the church, they're a place where we can expect to have spiritual and relational needs met. So most of us, one of the things in, in Leap of Faith, there was a song by Patti LaBelle. Are you ready for a miracle? Ready as I can be. Yeah, nice good black gospel sound going. Most of us are ready for some kind of miracle. We have problems that need God's intervention. God does do miracles, but most often he uses his people to dispense the compassion of Christ upon those with physical, spiritual, and relational crises. He still uses the church to care for those in its midst. That's why we have a deacon's fund. But we have to remember that the physical needs point us to the spiritual needs that Christ compassionately tends to as well. Let's pray. Father, we don't need to compare ourselves with this man. Somehow, as if uh, weighing on the scales that it's our problem as big as his or not as big as his, that's really not the issue. But Father, help us to come to lay our needs, the aches that we feel in the heart or the limbs, to bring these things that hinder us and hamper us and trouble us so to the only one who can ultimately deal with them. Help us to come in faith, but a faith that recognizes your freedom as God, to grant us the grace that you want us to have, and not necessarily the grace we want us to have. Help us to trust you as a loving father who does that which is best for his children, not that which is easiest for his children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.